ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Finding innovative strategies for you and your clients is what we do at Pacer ETFs. One of our newest ETFs, ticker ODDS, is the only ETF that gives investors exposure to online gambling, esports, and video game development. If you're interested in the future of digital entertainment, odds may be the three-legged strategy for you. Visit PacerETFs.com odds for more information. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me this week will be Dave Nottig, financial futurist at Betify. And as I usually like to do whenever Dave joins me, we're going to bat around several different ETF topics, including this wave of single stock and single bond ETFs that have recently come to market, which I'm not sure I've seen more media buzz around an ETF category in quite some time. I guess maybe a Bitcoin futures ETFs last year, but... There's a lot of attention around these, and it's not all good. Uh, there are some real concerns being raised about the potential risks involved with these. Uh, even last week, we saw the Massachusetts securities head open an inquiry on these products. So I want to get Dave's take on uh, everything going on with this new and what I think will be growing ETF category. I also want to touch on so-called influencer ETFs, which are back in the spotlight after a recent SEC filing from Taroso and an individual named Kevin Pafrath, who has like 2 million YouTube subscribers and a bunch of Twitter followers. Uh, it looks like he's hoping to capitalize on that by launching several ETFs. So we'll get into those. And then if we have time, I also want to take a look at these uh, Nightshares ETFs that launched a couple of months ago. These only offer market exposure at night, and it's early, but the performance thus far hasn't been great. So I'm very curious to hear what Dave thinks about those. I'll then be joined by Joanne Bianco, Client Portfolio Manager at BondBlocks, who actually, along with uh, Nightshares, I think those are the two new ETF issuers that have me most intrigued this year. Uh, but BondBlocks offers sector-specific high-yield bond ETFs along with a single credit rating high-yield bond ETFs. And Joanne's going to explain the uh, use cases around those. And then we'll also get into the overall opportunity bond block saw and bringing these to market. These are pretty unique tools. And then to close this week, very excited about this, I'll be joined by Ophelia Snyder, co-founder and president of 21 Shares, who, if you're not familiar with 21 Shares, 
They launched the world's first crypto ETF back in 2018. Great ticker symbol, HODL, H-O-D-L. This is listed in Switzerland. And 21Shares is actually the world's largest provider of crypto ETPs overall when you look at how many different products they offer, nearly 40 ETPs altogether. Uh, But Ophelia herself has a very unique backstory in terms of how she got involved in the space. So we're going to discuss that. And then listen to this. 21Shares does have a live Bitcoin ETF filing here in the U.S. It's actually in partnership with ARK Invest. So you know I'm going to ask Ophelia about uh, all of the developments we've seen here over the past several months. Should be a lot of fun. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's chat with Vetify's Dave Nottig. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. They're not just telling you what positions they've got. They're telling you precisely what trades they've made. It's a little bit of a who's who of the corporate bond space. Dave, how was uh, Camp Co-Talk? You just got back last week, right? Yeah, it was great, honestly, Naze. You know, I, we go every year, I should say, I go every year to this event for the last decade, basically. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a mix of economists and uh, investors, philanthropists, uh, business folks, journalists, usually quite a few. Uh, and, and, you know, not only did we have great weather and great fishing, we had some great conversation. I was so jealous seeing the various pictures you were posting out on Twitter. Just the fishing looked like fine dining, but to your point, uh, most importantly, fantastic conversations. And I guess on that note, before we get to these uh, ETF topics I have, did you have any quick takeaways from uh, Camp Co-Talk? Yeah, I mean, I had two, and I put up two articles today uh, covering this. One sort of in a a more touchy-feely zone, Uh, despite the fact that I've spent the last two or three months out on the road meeting people Uh, It really made me realize how important it is not just to have a coffee with somebody, but to create shared experiences. I think financial advisors really know this, right? I mean, whether it's uh, your regular golf game or a game of bridge or meeting at the Lions Club or whatever it is, something other than just the conversation, the conversation we've been having throughout the pandemic, getting out and actually having those shared experiences. I think that's really important. So that was that was a big takeaway for me. And then second, um, I, I, I posted a, a transcript, an edited transcript of a car ride I had with uh, Sam Reins from Corbu, one of the, you know, I think in, most interesting young economists out there right now. And obviously Barry Ritholtz, folks know from Masters in Business, in business and Ritholtz Wealth Management. Um, and we dug in pretty deep on labor, the U.S. economy. Uh, you know, the deglobalization or relocalization of American supply chains. I, and I walked away pretty hopeful overall. I, I mean, I definitely feel like there's a lot that we as a country need to do if we're going to be serious about things like onshoring semiconductors, et cetera. Uh, but I walked away feeling surprisingly hopeful that there's a lot of will to get those things done. I think that came across in both of the pieces. I mean, there was definitely more of an optimistic tone. And as I was thinking about this, you know, the people that you have in the room there at Camp Co-Talk come from all walks of life, very diverse set of views. And I, I was curious just from a political perspective, you know, I like to stay out of political discussions, right? Especially yeah, on this too. podcast, <laughs> we have a wide range of listeners, all of them with differing views. So I'm not looking to turn into a, a, a cable news show. But one thing I think we can all agree on is that the political discourse has been much more uh, cantankerous over the past decade or so. And I know it always is, but I do feel like things have definitely been much more polarizing. And I look even recently, I mean, 
I'm seeing stuff, you know, people talking about civil war and those sorts of things. I understand it's fringe, uh, you know, on, on both sides, but it is some scary stuff. I guess my question is, are you any more optimistic on the political side that people can uh, intelligently disagree with each other and move forward and not just immediately resort to mudslinging and, and digging in on their positions? I just feel like that's one of the biggest issue, issues we have. And I was curious if you saw, uh, you know, more of a bridge in the, the discussions you had over the past week. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, the first piece I wrote, which was I called Reality Tunnels, is really about that breaking down of barriers that I think has really exacerbated a lot of that cantankerousness, as you put it. I love that word. Uh, and and I did walk away feeling pretty optimistic. You know, it, it, it is a very diverse crew that shows up there in the woods of Maine every year, some hardcore Republicans, some hardcore Democrats. Uh, we generally don't talk a lot of di- about directly about politics because we're usually focused on the economy. Uh, But what I walked away with was a surprising amount of hope that people can actually listen to each other's opinions when you actually get in the same room and you treat each other like human beings. And I think in the age of the Internet uh, and certainly coming out of the isolation of the pandemic, I think a lot of us have forgotten what it's like to really be in that same room and shake somebody's hand face to face. No, that's well said. I mean, I agree. I think we all know social media over the past decade plus that has not helped things. And there's been a lot of benefits to social media. Right. But. From a, a political standpoint, not great. But hey, let's leave it at that. Uh, <laughs> we won't head any further down the uh, the political road. Let's get to some fun ETF topics. And I want to start with this wave of single stock and single bond ETFs. Yeah. So, all right. So look, I show there are currently 20 of these things on the market. There are 16 single stock ETFs, which of course these offer leverage and inverse exposure to stocks like Tesla, NVIDIA, Apple, Coinbase. And then there's one what all refer to as a risk managed ETF. This is from Innovator and offers exposure to Tesla up to a cap each quarter. And then you're protected from anything more than a, a 10% decline. And then there are also now three single bond ETFs, which uh, offer exposure to on the run treasuries at different parts of the yield curve. Not only that, we recently saw filings from Roundhill for two single foreign stock ETFs. And I think what's noteworthy here, no leverage. They're not inverse. They're literally just one-to-one exposure to uh, Saudi Aramco and Samsung. What are your thoughts on all this? Do you like yeah, these? Yeah, well, let's, let, let's go in reverse order. So the, um, the sort of quasi-depository receipt ones filed by Roundhill for Saudi Aramco and Samsung, those at least I can come up with a very clear use case. If you are an individual investor or even you know a portfolio manager who is primarily trading domestic equities, it's really difficult to get exposure to something like direct shares of Samsung or Saudi Aramco because they don't trade in the U.S. They don't trade in a dollar form that you can easily access from your U.S. equity brokerage account. With these products, if, you know, when and if they come to market, it solves that problem. You now can get access to these international companies. I think there are plenty of folks who would love to be able to trade in and around Saudi Aramco, right? It's obviously an enormous player in the energy space, but if you're trading your own portfolio through your Schwab account or your Fidelity account, you can't really get direct access there. So there, I at least see it as a, a useful access vehicle. It, it, interesting to point out that there were actually versions of these products filed, I want to say in 2010, on a list of, I don't know, 50 or 180, effectively creating these ADRs in this direction where they were single holdings. So I, it is a case that people have talked about before, and I think that makes sense. The single leverage, single stock leverage ones, the Tesla versions and all on all of their ilk, uh, I have really mixed feelings about these guys, Nate, <laughs> because on the one hand, 
look, they're going to do what they say they're going to do, right? I mean, these are being run by companies that know what they're doing with major swap counterparties. You will, in fact, get the daily, you know, 1.25x of Tesla or the minus one of Tesla that you're trying to get. The problem is that because these are leveraged and inverse, we all know that there's this problem of folks who think they're buying for the long term and these are day trading vehicles. I think this is particularly dangerous with stocks like Tesla, which are retail darlings. It's really tempting for somebody to say, oh, I can get a little juice on my Tesla by buying this thing, not realizing they're going to have massive path dependency problems that could lead to significant underperformance of their expectations. And they're really, really, really expensive. Nobody should be holding these for a full year and eating the, what is it, 115, 1.15% you're paying on these things. So uh, that, that I'm concerned with. And there's some end-of-day trading concerns if these got really big. We talked about this two years ago a lot, Nate, when the VIX complex was blowing up. VIX ETPs ended up moving volatility around, moving the VIX pin, because they owned so much of the available volatility from the options strip underneath VIX. The same thing could happen here should we end up with a weird disconnect where the leverage and inverse single stock ETPs become a significant percentage of the AUM or the market cap of these companies. What about the single bond ETFs? What do you think about those? The single bond ETFs, I think, are a little bit more interesting. Um, you know, the ones like something like U10, uh, which is always holding the current 10-year, that's an interesting liquidity play. It is the fact that the on-the-run bonds, the ones that are currently the live bonds, the most recent auction, trade differently and better than off-the-run bonds, bonds that are now, you know, 91 days old plus. Um, that creates opportunities for people to build really interesting models around sort of the microstructure changes in the bond market. Um, I, I, so I, I see them as targets for people running sophisticated models that really require that kind of precision. I think that's a very narrow use case, uh, but at least I can come up with it. Okay, so <laughs> several questions that your comments have generated for me as usual. Let's go back to these single foreign stock ETFs. The question I have here is, do you think the SEC is going to approve these? Because obviously, when you look at ADRs, I mean, there are listing requirements for ADRs, right? There, there are certain disclosures that have to be made, and that'll be required on the on the single stock ETFs as well. But these feel a little bit like an end around to that ADR process. Do you think these will ultimately get approved? Um, I think it's going to be difficult for them to not approve them, right? Because uh, certainly it is totally acceptable, acceptable to say, take 15 of these stocks and put them in a portfolio and none of them are listed in the U.S. and there's no ADR listing requirement issue there. Uh, so if, the, if, they did, if they dinged these products solely based on the fact that, well, they should be U.S. listed, that's a real trick. I'd love to see the language. <laughs> I think that was a real tough one for them to walk that line. Um, so I suspect that they'll be approved and they'll get some moderate amount of use uh, I don't think they're as controversial as some of the other products. Okay, so going back to those other products, just the, the Tesla leverage or inverse exposure, you heard me mention at the top that last week we got this news that the Massachusetts securities regulators looking into these. Yeah. You and I talked when these first launched about all of the uh, comments from the SEC that were pretty inflammatory towards these products. We know sort of backdropping all of this, there was that FINRA proposal earlier this year on more complex ETPs. My, my question is, what do you think ultimately happens here? Because we know ETF issuers are going to be aggressive in launching these products, especially if they do have su uh, some success and we see assets going into these products. But clearly regulators aren't overly thrilled about these. What, what happens longer term? Like, do you think we ultimately get a more 
robust regulatory framework from the SEC around more complex products? I know that's where you think it should reside. I, I'm just curious, how does this all play out? I, I actually think it's much more likely we see something definitive out of FINRA um, about how these products are sold, right? That's what FINRA gets to, to regulate. They regulate broker-dealers and sales practices and things like that. So they're the ones who could, for instance, tell Merrill Lynch or Schwab that they have to put up certain disclosures between uh, certain kinds of investors, that advisors have to make certain kinds of disclosures. I could That, that was their whole complex product uh, you know, regulation proposal that they put out earlier in the year. I think that was in March. Um, I could see that happening and these products very easily getting scooped up into that complex products definition. I think it's extremely unlikely that the SEC somehow backtracks uh, and forces these products to delist or suspends the listings of new ones. I mean, they already put inverse Tesla out there, right? So it's like, it's not like they're holding back because they were only going to hang on to, you know, I don't know, 3M and Exxon or something like that, and lower vol stocks. So I think it's very unlikely that they put this genie back in the bottle. Um, I think it's very unlikely that any kind of state inquiry into this changes the name of the game at all. I think all of this puts more impetus on FINRA to do something on the education side until perhaps we have a, a full turnover in Congress and the White House and actually pass legislation around these kinds of things. I don't think there's a chance. And I, uh, to be clear, I don't think there's a chance of like fundamental securities legislation in the next six years. How many of these things do you think we could see launch? I believe right now there are like 65 filings with the SEC. I've said, just for reference, I wouldn't be surprised to see hundreds of these launch, if not a thousand. But what do you yeah, think? Yeah, no, I think it's in the thousands, which is one of the reasons I'm a little concerned would be a strong word. It makes your and my life a pain in the neck, right? We don't need, we don't need 2,000 of these things out there trading. But, there's, but if you think about it, just under Tesla, right, not only do we have, as you point out, the options overlay strategy, there's a somewhat similar set of those, I think it's cars or e-cars coming from Simplify, which I don't believe is a single stock. I think it's a handful um, of stocks. Then you've got all the various flavors of up and down leverage you could provide on top of that. It's not inconceivable that the 50 most traded stocks in the country could have 10 versions of, of single stock ETPs on each ticker. That's just those top 50. So if you talk about expanding this out into sort of a tradable set of, say, the, the all the stocks in the S&P 500, easily 1,500 to 3,000 securities. That's a pain in the neck. Hey, it makes our job difficult, but also a lot of fun. It does. <laughs> Gives us something to talk about, Nate. Hey, you know, a real concern there, which I know you've highlighted as well, I this ticker confusion, right? If you have 50 yeah. variations of, of Tesla ETFs, uh, we've seen just with single stocks where there's confusion between the ticker symbols, right? You have one company that is, you know, you have Zoom and then another company that's Zoom Growth or whatever, and they have similar ticker or like, symbols. Or we had, met, we had Meta, and, Meta and Facebook for a while. <laughs> I think that could be a real issue with investors. Oh, it's 100% an issue. And I think that's why the gating at the at the you know face of the coal mine, right, when you're hitting your ticket order in your Schwab account, I think that's where you're going to start seeing uh, at least some strong guidance about how to approach these things, you know, popping up things that says you are not buying Tesla shares, you are buying an ETP with a 115 expense ratio that's not going to perform the way you think it does. Uh, I think that would be prudent. Mm -hmm. All right. Another story that I'm tracking is these uh, new ETFs or these new ETF filings from Toroso. Now, now listen to this. These are filings for three Meet Kevin ETFs. That's actually what these are called, <laughs> Meet Kevin ETFs. These, I love it. Yeah, so these are three ETFs covering what I'll call uh, disruptive or innovative tech. But here's the interesting part. 
These are seeking to leverage the personal brand of a guy named Kevin Paffrath, uh, who, who, listeners, if you don't know who this is, don't worry, I didn't either. But he has nearly two million <laughs> YouTube subscribers. How do you not know? How do you not know me, Kevin? I had Come no on. idea who this was. He has a few hundred Twitter thousand, uh, Twitter, uh, sorry, a few hundred thousand Twitter followers. He has a website at meetkevin.com, and he offers tips on like uh, real estate and, and investing. But if I were to summarize the situation overall, Dave. This is somebody with no uh, professional portfolio management experience that I'm aware of. Oh, it's way worse than you think. I've been following this kid for a while because um, I like try. To, I try to keep my fingers in sort of YouTube finance and TikTok finance and understand. Like, I mean, that's sort of my job is to try to figure out where the future's going. This guy's been around for a few years. He's a certain ilk in this. Uh, sort of YouTube finance community. Real estate seems to be the big attractor. Most of these folks are in the real estate world at some level. Um, and I've watched these guys' videos, and the, <laughs> the funniest part is if you go back a year or two, he was vehemently talking about how nobody should ever take his advice on stock investing because it was far too complicated, and real estate was where all the money was at, and that's where he was going to focus. And now, clearly, he's had a change of heart and now thinks he's an expert on stocks. Uh, obviously, nobody should be investing in these products. I mean, I feel like I almost feel like we don't even need to be saying it. This is somebody who literally two years ago told you not to give him money to put in the stock market. Well, let me ask you this, and I'll, I'll try to take the other side in that. You may recall last year we talked uh, a little bit about influencer ETFs when we saw um, Barstool's Day Portnoy, Portnoy. right? He was yeah. involved with that Vanex social sentiment ETF buzz. And then Maybe to a lesser degree because this individual operates in the investment advisory space, but uh, Ross Gerber with the advisor right. shares Gerber Kawasaki ETF, right? GK. Buzz had some initial success, but then assets have steadily declined. GK hasn't really done much of anything. It has like 15 million in assets. Do you think there's any uh, path to success for influencer ETFs? Because, I, you know, I've talked about this uh, before. The ETF wrapper is being used as a vehicle to monetize social influence. And, you know, we can talk about whether that, that's good or bad. I, I guess what I'm asking is, do you think that these products can ultimately find success for the right individual? Uh, yeah, the, the old fashioned way, right? Prove that you're a really good investor for a decade and make your make your make your fame on that. And then people will happily give you money. I mean, look at Jeff Gunlock at Double Line, right? Uh, you know, that's how you that's how you become an influencer that generates AUM is you become really good at managing money. Uh, I'm not sure that we can say that about, you know, Dave Portnoy or me, Kevin. Um, right now, again, I don't want to I'm not disparaging these people as individuals. My point is, if you're going to hire an active manager, you should have some fundamental belief that they have an edge. That's the reason you pay up for an active manager. If they don't have an edge, if they don't have a believable edge. You should be in an index fund. I don't think that that's controversial. So. Uh, you know, I look, it's possible that Meet Kevin's ETFs will launch and he will have a billion dollars in them and will flip heads on that that coin a dozen times in a row and will be the best performing fund in the world next year. Uh, I, I won't change my opinion that you probably still shouldn't have put money with somebody who was telling you not to invest with him. All right. Uh, I, I love that. So, look, uh, in terms of having an edge, let's close this week with these Nightshares ETFs. So I'm going to be joined next week by the CEO of Nightshares, Bruce Levine. Uh, who, as you know, they launched these two ETFs back in June, the Nightshares 500 ETF ticker NSPY and the Nightshares 2000 ETF ticker NIWM. And uh, in a nutshell, they seek to capture only the night performance of the S&P 500 and then uh, the, the Russell 2000, respectively, right? So they're only invested from market close to market open each day. 
And I caused a little bit of a stir a few weeks ago, Dave, by uh, pointing out that the performance of these hasn't been great so far. So let me just give you these numbers. Since launch, NSPY is down about 4%, while the S&P 500 is up 6%, so 10% differential there. And then NIWM is down 6%, while the Russell 2000 is up 9%. Jeez. So yeah. Here, here's my and question. That's what, that's what eight weeks. Yeah, like and, weeks? and that's why it, yeah. that's why it popped up on my radar. I mean, this is a short time frame, so it wouldn't have been surprising to see a difference, you know, a few percent, right? But th- these are big differentials, and I remember, like over the years. So if we go back over the past five years, I kept seeing this idea pop up on Twitter, and the pushback that I always saw was that trans uh, transaction costs eat up any outperformance. But you look at this performance differential right now; it looks like there's a lot more going on than just transaction costs. And I know it's still very early, but do, do you think these can work longer term? Well, it's not just transaction costs. It's, it's, it's a rival cost, right? I mean, you have to take into account your market move, the information that you're providing to the market because you're a known trader, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, that is all technically transaction costs because it takes it from the point of idea to implementation. And that's where these seem to be falling down. Um, I'm not horribly surprised. I mean, as you pointed out, this has been a bit of a Twitter cause celeb for years. Lots of folks I know have written papers, commented on papers, uh, and it's fascinating. And I'm very grateful for Bruce for actually putting these products out into the street so that we could actually test this, you know, and get it past the hypothetical stage. But it certainly does look at this point like there's a lot going on here that's not in the favor of nightshares. Now, I've heard some uh, some counters that, you know, because we've been in a little bit of a down news cycle, the overnight news has been particularly bad. And then we've had the rallies during the day and that's not the normal thing. But, you know, look, it's never normal. So you always have to deal with the market that you showed up at. Uh, and at the moment, the market that the, these funds have showed up at has not been favorable. And that's a heck of a hole to dig out of too, Nate. It's like even if this turns and the fall just is completely in their favor, that's a long way to dig yourself back out. Well, I can't wait to uh, visit with Bruce next week. You heard me say at the top, you know, it's funny. I actually think night shares and then bond blocks, who I'll be visiting with bond blocks as uh, Joanne Bianco here in a moment. I think these are my two favorite new ETF entrants this year. And that's actually one of the reasons I've been tracking these night shares ETFs more closely. I- I'm honestly just fascinated by them because, again, I saw this idea batted around for, for several years. And I-, I think you're right. I think Bruce and night shares deserve a lot of credit for bringing these to market. I certainly hope they have success. But it is a big hole early on, so it'll be interesting to see. I, I hope they keep them alive, right? I mean, what my I, I, these are these are funds that need to live for three to five years for us to really be able to understand. But if there are not a lot of assets in them, I, I'm not expecting anybody to keep them open out of charity. No, I agree, and that's the challenge, right? Because ultimately, it does come down to performance with products like these. And if the performance isn't there, then the assets aren't going to follow. So it, it yeah. might actually be fun to see these have some outperformance, get some assets in them. To your point. So they can stay alive and be out. Yeah, we can analyze the data. That's right. Well, Dave, uh, we'll have to leave it there. Always fun chatting. Thank you for joining me this week. Uh, Thanks for having me, Nate. That was Dave Nottig, financial futurist at Betify. This week's episode is brought to you by Goldman Sachs Asset Management ETFs. Smart investments made simple. Learn more at gsam.com slash ETFs. Alps Distributors, Inc. is the distributor of the Goldman Sachs ETF funds.
I'm now joined by Joanne Bianco, Client Portfolio Manager at Bond Blocks, who back in February, they launched their first seven ETFs. These are all single-sector high-yield bond ETFs. And then they have since followed that up with four additional ETF launches, including single credit rating high-yield bond ETFs. So 11 ETFs in all, about $300 million in assets. And Joanne is now on the line with me from Chicago. Joanne, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you very much for having me on your podcast today, Nate. You, you know, so it's interesting. I've long said that there is a ton of white space in fixed income ETFs, right? There's still plenty of room to innovate. And from my perspective, I think these recent launches from Bond Blocks are really the perfect example of that. And so I thought to begin, uh, perhaps tell us a little bit more about the backstory uh, of Bond Blocks. So you are the first ETF issuer, 100% focused on bond ETFs. I know there's a highly impressive uh, leadership team in place. So what's the backstory on getting involved in ETFs? Yeah, well, to answer your question, Bond Blocks was founded less than a year ago by a team of industry veterans who realized that there was this meaningful gap between the needs of fixed income investors in the ETF space and the products available to them. So in terms of the backgrounds of the six co-founders that I work with, in their past positions, they've, they've overseen the creation of a number like 350 ETFs totaling a trillion, in dollar, a trillion dollars in assets under management. So there is deep experience and expertise on this team, uh, many of whom have known each other and are worked together for the past uh, 15 to 25 years. And they have leadership, they've held leadership positions in some of the industry's most established firms in the ETF business, including uh, BlackRock's iShares, State Street, Goldman Sachs, and J.P. Morgan. So uh, they've spent their years, their careers, challenging the status quo with first-to-market products, as, as well as the insights in how to use them. And, you know, they also have the organizational know-how in terms of how to launch new products and how to run this company. And as you said, um, our singular mission is to carve out a niche in the fixed income ETF space. Um, and with Bond Blocks, that we are the first firm with a sole focus on fixed e income ETFs. Um, and we're not trying to beat the established players at their own game, but we're trying. We are offering products that they are not, and that's the, the pattern that you'll see in all of our product launches. Uh, we have ongoing conversations with all types of investors to figure out the type of product gap that they're seeing in the fixed income space. And then we design and launch products to address these gaps. Yeah, so let's look at some of those products. And I do want to start with the single sector bond ETFs. Again, very unique okay. uh, entrants. These hadn't previously existed. And I thought as an example, let's take the bond blocks, U.S. dollar high yield bond energy sector ETF, ticker XHYE. Just walk us through the basics of this one. What, what is this designed to do? Okay, um, this one, um, our high-yield energy ETF, which has the ticker XHYE, as you said, it seeks to track the results of the ICE B of A Diversified U.S. Cash Pay High-Yield Energy Index. Uh, right now, it holds 113 different companies, and they're engaged in the major industry subsectors, such as gas distribution, exploration and production, um, oil field equipment and services, and then the final one is oil refining and marketing. 
around um, 64% of this ETF is rated double B, so it is one of our higher average credit quality industry sector ETF. It also has a number, a fair number of rising stars in it currently, or high yield names that could be upgraded back to investment grade, including names such as uh, Occidental Petroleum, Western Midstream, EQM Midstream, just to name a few. Okay, and then in terms of just the, the sector coverage here, so that's energy. I'm showing that you also mm-hmm. cover consumer cyclicals, consumer non-cyclicals, healthcare, uh, the financial and REIT sector, uh, industrials, and then telecom, media, and tech. Um, talk about using these in a portfolio. So obviously these do offer more granular exposure, right? It's more precise exposure. So how do you see these being used? What are some potential use cases? Right. You know, they're, they're designed to empower investors to execute execute their industry views with in high yield with more precision, you know, while also benefiting from the transparency, efficiency, low cost, and in, in on-exchange liquidity that, that all ETFs deliver. And, you know, as you know, and as all investors know in, in high yield or in other asset classes, the industry positioning decisions that portfolio managers make have very significant implications for their, their performance. And our analysis of the past 25 years of performance in high yield indicates that there is meaningful dispersion between the different industry sectors. So our products are designed to, to help portfolio managers build these kind of precision exposures. Um, in terms of use cases, I'm, I'm, I'm very glad that you asked this, que- this question. There's, there are many use cases for our industry sector ETFs. And, we split them into three broad categories for simplicity's sake. The first one being for active or tactical positioning. The second one for liquidity management. And the third one for diversification purposes. So, okay, giving you more detail on the first category, which is active or tactical positioning. Investors can use our sector ETFs to express their views as to where we are in the credit cycle they can fig- by figuring out which industries they want to overweight or underweight. They can also uh, utilize our more specialized ETFs to take off broad sector um, ETF exposure and then redeploy into the sector or sectors of their choice. And this could help them more closely align with their, their views of relative value, their views of risk. Um, and then they, you know, another active positioning strategy they could take is, you know, they could rapidly implement short-term trading strategies, you know, faster than they could do with um, individual cash bonds. Um, And then moving on to the liquidity management category, uh, obviously they can manage the liquidity needs that arise from fund flows, and there's the potential for execution advantages versus cash bond markets, especially during volatile or less liquid environments. Um, they could also utilize our ETFs as investment placeholders while sourcing new bonds or waiting for new issue supply. And then finally, they can, uh, you know, uh, this is something that as my former life as a portfolio manager, I think our ETFs could be very helpful in helping managers facilitate the ramp up of new man- mandates. They could get the industry exposure they want quickly this way. Um, Okay, and then moving on finally to the the third category, diversification. 
investors could utilize our ETFs with the goal of reducing the idiosyncratic risk that they experience from individual securities. Any or all of our sector ETFs uh, provide possible diversification benefits for investors. Yeah, and Joanne, on that last point in terms of diversification, as I think about mm-hmm. long-term investors and how they may use these in a diversified portfolio, I, I mean, it sounds like it's the same concept as a sector equity ETF, right, where somebody may want to overweight right. or underweight uh, to a, a particular area. And I, I guess on that note, you, you know, as I was thinking about our conversation, obviously, sector ETFs on the equity side have been around for a long time, and, and they're pretty popular when you look at assets. I'm curious, what took so long on the fixed income side? Why hadn't these been done by somebody before? Yeah, you are definitely correct. Similar products have existed for decades in the equities market. But until recently, fixed income investors looking to execute targeted views through ETFs have not had the ability to do so. I think the difference now is that the modernization of the fixed income markets over the past decade had has created new opportunities for targeted products like ours, um, specifically innovations in trading technology, pricing data, even better analytics have, have transformed the fixed income markets. And so they have now created new opportunities for the development of institutional quality targeted fixed income products that our investors are looking for. And we are looking to create. <laughs> yeah, and you know, it's interesting because ETFs are often pointed to as one of the, the reasons why the bond market has been coming out of the dark ages, that uh, you are mm-hmm. seeing these innovations in market pricing and technology. Right. And it's it's not necessarily as opaque as it was in the past. Let, let me ask you this. I'm going to ask you the, uh, the, the old cliche bond ETF question. Uh, do you have <laughs> okay. any concerns wrapping high-yield bonds in an ETF. And I'll say, just just to be clear, from my perspective, I feel like we should be well past the point of uh, a fear-mongering here, especially after the way bond ETFs acquitted themselves during the COVID crash. But any concerns at all with the uh, the quote-unquote uh, mismatch in liquidity and, and those sorts of things? Uh, well, we don't have concerns. We don't think the market should have concerns. We do get asked this question all the time. It's obviously a fair question. Um, the thing to understand is that in, in the past, oh, like over 15 years since high-yield ETFs were introduced, they have demonstrated the ability to track their benchmarks and operate successfully during a myriad of challenging market environments, not only the COVID crash of 2020, but also the financial crisis in 2008 and nine, and the market drawdown this year. It's been a very challenging market environment in high-yield. Um, in fact, in times of market turmoil, when liquidity in cash bonds and high yield dries up, we've seen that high yield ETFs have become uh, one of the price discovery mechanisms for the market. And, you know, obviously what we mean by this is that market participants can more easily turn to high yield ETFs for liquidity than they can in individual cash bonds during periods of turmoil. And there's transparency, the underlying securities are priced daily. I mean, the Fed itself demonstrated their support of the ETF wrapper for corporate bonds by their purchases of corporate ETFs in the spring of 2020. No, I completely agree. And I've, I've pounded the table on all of those points <laughs> over the past uh, yeah. couple of years. But I always think it's good to address them, and especially given your background, yeah. you know, having been a, a manager in the high yield space and then now on the ETF side, I thought you'd have a good perspective there. Uh, Joanne, just a couple of minutes left. The other ETFs you offer 
include the bond blocks, JP Morgan, U.S. dollar emerging markets, one to 10 year bond ETF ticker, XEMD. That's currently your most popular ETF by assets. And then there are three single credit rating bond ETFs, such as the bond blocks, double B rated U.S. dollar high yield corporate bond ETF ticker, XBB. XBB. Um, any quick comments you want to offer on these, I guess, particularly sure. on the category rated funds? Sure. You know, when you think of an active portfolio manager, you probably don't think of passively managed ETFs. But in fact, our specialized credit rating category ETFs can be a great tool for investors to express active views. You know, our funds have a host of benefits that can enable uh, investors, just like our industry funds, to express views on credit quality in this case or where we are in the credit cycle. You know, they could decide to overweight double Bs if they want less risk in high yields or add risk to their profile with triple Cs. Or finally, like right in the middle, what we sometimes call the Goldilocks of high yield single Bs. You know, they have lower interest rate risks than double Bs, stronger credit profiles and, the, and lower default risk than triple Cs. And then they're presently at a yield advantage versus broad high yield indices. Well, you know, again, it's just amazing to me as I look at the bond blocks lineup just the ability for investors to get more surgical in terms of their exposure. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what Bond Blocks is, is offering. You may have heard me mention this earlier. I really think Bond Blocks is in the running for best new ETF issuer this year. I just love seeing the innovation, <laughs> and especially in fixed income. But Joanne, we'll have to leave it there. Again, a pleasure to connect. Uh, best of luck to you. And thank you thank for joining you. me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That was Joanne Bianco, Client Portfolio Manager at Bond Blocks. And now a word from iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest. iShares sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainability-related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC. I'm now joined by Ophelia Snyder, co-founder and president of 21Shares, who back in 2018, they launched the world's first crypto ETF on the Six Swiss Exchange. Now, if you fast forward to today, they currently offer nearly 40 crypto ETPs across Europe. They're the largest provider of crypto ETPs in the world. They also recently launched their first products in the US. These are uh, private funds owning a basket of crypto assets. And then, yes, they do have a live spot Bitcoin ETF filing in the U.S. as well. It's in partnership with ARK Invest, uh, which certainly catches your attention. Ophelia is now on the line with me from uh, Zurich, Switzerland. Ophelia, pleasure to connect. Thank you for joining me. Um, no, thank you so much for having me. Okay, so look, a lot I want to cover, including that spot Bitcoin ETF filing, 
But let's start with some background for people unfamiliar with 21 shares. So I just gave a few data points on your lineup. Uh, give us a little more detail on the types of products you offer and where exactly these are traded. So 21 shares is the world's largest issuer of cryptocurrency ETPs. We launched the first ETP in the world in Zurich in 2018, um, and we've grown our product suite quite significantly since over 39 products covering everything from single assets to indexes to shorts to yield generating products. Um, we list and trade these products across on 11 exchanges across seven countries, um, started in Switzerland, but obviously expanding to France, Germany, Austria, Sweden, the Netherlands. We launched the first product uh, in the crypto space in Australia, and we're also running um, to private placements in the U.S. I know some of our listeners may be familiar with the Amoon brand, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. What's the distinction between 21 shares and Amoon? So the, the ethos of this company has always been bridging traditional finance with crypto and finding ways to make it easier for people to participate in this ecosystem and enter the space. Uh, and we do that in a bunch of different ways. Um, a, a big part of that is our research, which we committed a long time ago to being free um, and provided to everyone to help with education. We obviously have our exchange traded product and Amoon is our token provider making that's focused on making the DeFi world more accessible. And tell me a little bit about your background. So I believe that I saw you used to make marine biology documentaries for the uh, Discovery Channel. You have to tell us about that. And then uh, I'm curious, how did you ultimately end up in crypto? So it was a bit of a winding road, actually. I, I never really planned to start a company. Um, but around 2013, 2014, um, I had wrapped up my time uh, making documentaries because I honestly really loved numbers and really loved finance. I was working at a venture capital fund and my mom of all people came to talk to me one day and she was like, you know, there's this really cool thing called Bitcoin. Have you looked at it? I'm like, okay. Um, and she went on and on and on about how this was essential for the world and going to be so helpful in a world of increasing geopolitical uncertainty and increasing um, globalization of commerce, that a single unified currency made so much sense and hedging costs for companies like the likes of Merck are crazy and it makes it would be so much better if we could all just agree and get monetary policy away from politics. And my mom completely got the whole point of crypto, um, got the, the difficulties of the financial infrastructure, got the geopolitical risk, got the monetary policy, absolutely the whole thing, but there wasn't really a good way for her to get into the space. And so that's how I actually started following the space. Um, I was I was still at Stanford at the time, and a couple of my other classmates were starting to talk about this thing called Bitcoin and crypto and blockchain and what was this going to look like. Um, I then I went on and became an investment banker, and I got my MBA, and I got a lot deeper into finance and a lot deeper into like how things are structured in the financial world and what I like to call financial plumbing, like how money moves through systems is fascinating to me. And so I was doing all of these things. I'd been following the crypto space for a long time and my co-founder um, and I had pizza one day and got to talking and both of our moms had had very similar issues in terms of accessing the space and really being able to 
participate, even though they completely understood all of the complicated bits of crypto, the actual access point was really difficult for them. And so that's really the impetus for building the company. Um, it's not a straightforward line, and it was quite a winding path, and I, I really never intended to build a company. I just wanted to solve a very, quite frankly, personal problem. I love um, that backstory. That's fantastic. In the 21 shares name, that, that came from the 21 million cap on the supply of Bitcoin, correct? Yeah, exactly. I love it. Okay, so let's talk spot Bitcoin ETF. And as I mentioned, you do have a live filing with the SEC for the ARC 21 shares Bitcoin ETF. And I know you can't speak to that uh, d directly, but obviously you have been following this entire Bitcoin ETF uh, saga over the years. And, you know, I look here more recently. So just over the past couple of months, the SEC rejected spot filings from Grayscale and Bitwise. Uh, Grayscale is now suing the SEC I saw that Bitwise has indicated they may end up doing the same. Just high level, what's your take on everything here? I mean, do you understand the SEC's positioning that they first want to see some sort of regulatory framework in place for the underlying crypto exchanges? Uh, or does that give you heartburn? Just what are your thoughts on this entire situation? So no new asset class can really thrive without clarity in regulation. That's a, a reality. It, it's very difficult to do business in crypto. It's very difficult to do business in anything unless you know what the rules are and what you're supposed to do. That uncertainty element isn't actually good for the industry or good for building companies at a fundamental level, um, regardless of whatever the specifics of that regulation are. It's not helpful. Um, and so over time, right, the regulatory environment is always evolving, not just in terms of how regulation is actually drafted, but also in like what essentially are the implementation notes around how that those regulations are interpreted in a contemporary environment for whatever new financial infrastructure comes out, whatever new energy infrastructure comes out, we're constantly reinterpreting regulation. And it's such a critical part of making it possible to build robust businesses. And there are really three main objectives of regulation, especially when it comes to securities markets fundamentally. It's protecting investors, providing monetary market stability, and preventing money laundering. And I think as an industry, we're quite pro having clarity on all of those things. And if you look at countries that have been very clear upfront, that's how we ended up in Switzerland. Switzerland decided a very long time ago that they were going to create a framework and they were going to roll with it and we were going to try it. And the reality is the implementation and the interpretation of that framework has evolved as the industry has evolved, but that's completely normal. It's exactly what we're going to end up seeing with Mika in Europe. Those types of more comprehensive regulatory frameworks are actually really a net positive. It's one of the reasons why you see like such a flourishing crypto ecosystem in Switzerland. People understand what they're supposed to do and they do it. And I my hope is for the United States that we end up in a very similar situation where there is clarity on what people are supposed to do, clarity in how to do this that really does meet ultimately what well-intentioned regulators around the world want. It, but just to clarify on that, I mean, do you think that the SEC, they're going to have to provide that regulatory clarity, there's going to have to be that regulatory framework in place before they allow a spot Bitcoin ETF to market? 
Do you think that framework has to come first? I think it's hard to say. I think the U.S., in terms of developing these types of frameworks, is quite a bit behind other developed economies. Why is that? Switzerland's had one for years. Europe's most of the way through MECA. Um, Australia has started to have one. You're seeing regulatory frameworks in Japan. You're seeing the U.S. has been a little bit more reluctant here. Um, To some degree, it makes sense. And if you look at the history of ETFs, for example, typically the European regulators do move first. Um, And that's not an uncommon thing. But I think we're reaching an inflection point where we we do need that clarity from the U.S. Um, And whether that comes from the SEC or the CFTC and and how they choose to break that apart and which piece they choose to tackle first, at least from my perspective, isn't the critical piece. What we actually need is a meaningful, harmonized set of regulations. This is what it is. This is how to deal with it. Here's the period in which to become compliant. Here's how you do that. It's interesting. That's you know, all really the industry is looking for. Yeah, and I've asked this question of some other guests, but I don't, I'm not sure any of them have been as well positioned as you are to, to answer this. But, you know, it is interesting just looking at European regulators and how much more open they have been to spot products than the SEC. And I, I, you touched on it earlier. I mean, do you think it just comes down to that's kind of what's ingrained in the culture? They tend to be a little more forward thinking, more open to innovation than the SEC? Does it boil down to, to something that simple? So, I mean, this is a, a bit of an, I, I'm a bit of a history nerd. So I, I look at all of this through generally a historical lens. And if you think about the way in which regulations, both in the U.S. and Europe, have evolved over time, they're quite different. So, for example, Switzerland is very much based on um, common sense practice and precedent and the way they actually implement regulations. So they write things that are very broad, and then they essentially attach implementation notes to them. And that's actually how most of Europe works, too, if you look at things like MIFID. The way they do them is they write these big overarching things, and then there are typically, like, practice notes from the regulators around, okay, like, this is how we're interpreting this. And those are reassessed more frequently than the regulations themselves. And it's a very different way of doing things versus in the – and a very different legacy in terms of what infrastructure already exists, right? So Europe has had harmonized ETF-specific regulation for a, a while, the U.S. still doesn't have consistent ETF regulation, right? We're still relying on exemptive relief in a, in a number of different cases. And that's a very different way of structuring a market. It's not necessarily better or worse. It's just fundamentally different. And it causes there to be a different set of issues around these types of discussions. What I will say is regardless of where or how securities regulation has evolved in any given jurisdiction, we've typically seen regulators follow a very similar, very consistent path regardless of the jurisdiction, right? The types of questions they ask, the types of areas they're trying to get smart on, the types of things that matter to them are actually quite consistent. Um, you know, you're looking at market microstructure. You're looking at how do you think, how do you handle central clearing with a high volatility product? You're looking at market oversight. How do you think about market oversight? What is the market of significant size? Is this of significant size? How do you explain this to retail? All of those questions are very consistent as you work through this. And I think different regulators are at different points on that learning curve. And we work with regulators all over the world to help them develop this knowledge in-house and have those tools. And in the same way, we do that for everyone from retail investors in Europe to family offices, to hedge funds, to pension plans. We also do that with regulators. And it's a huge part of our ethos is providing this 
free, accessible research that's designed to help people get comfortable with this space. Ophelia, moving away from the regulatory side of the equation, so listeners of this podcast know that I've long been a proponent of a spot Bitcoin ETF, and I feel like over the years, uh, more people have come around on this, and I think more people understand the potential value prop of, of this product. But even today, it's funny. I mean, I still get beat up on Twitter by people saying a spot ETF is the <laughs> the dumbest thing imaginable, that the whole point of crypto is to own the assets direct, not wrap them in a uh, traditional fund wrapper, which references laws from 1940. So I'll, I'll just ask you, why do we need crypto ETPs versus just buying crypto direct? So there are bunch of reasons for that. Um, and I, you can go back to the origin story of my company. Why did my mom not buy crypto? Well, it all came down to infrastructure, right? Like at the end of the day, she doesn't want to set up a separate account. She doesn't want another bank account. And I completely understand and respect that. That's not for everybody. Not everybody wants to actively manage their money. Not everybody is that engaged with that part of their life. This is a way of making this work within the traditional rail. Um, and fundamentally, that is still today how most people manage their financial lives. Aside from the convenience factor, um, crypto markets are still really early, right? They're still in their infancy, and you can deal with quite a range of issues when investing directly from, from custody to security, loss of private keys, loss of trusted information, uh, opening of external wallets, having to self-host. Do you trust third parties, these counterparties? Who are they? How do you think about that diligence? Um, our products, and I, I generally believe spot products in general, are really about making crypto more accessible in a way that structurally is quite vanilla. So it's physically replicated, it's segregated, it's deposited in an offline wallet, so it's cold storage. You can use your existing infrastructure to do it. Somebody else is making sure that, you know, the security practices are best in class. Um, all your, you don't need to actually dedicate resources to management, custody, all of these issues. There's a lot of simplicity, especially, and this is more relevant to Europe, but there's also quite a few benefits in terms of tax and clarity around tax treatment of the structures, as well as clarity, quite frankly, of like the fact that this is compatible with fund mandates, which physical crypto often is not. Um, the example I use, you know, quite frequently is, it's sort of like asking a commodities trader where their brain silo is. Do they really need one? Is that actually relevant? Is that where they're adding value? Maybe yes, maybe no. Um, and I think it's quite similar to how people think about gold, right? A gold bar and a vault versus trading in gold ETF. There are very practical reasons why that's a better structure. And that doesn't even take into account the fact that, for example, our product suite has a bunch of things that are not single asset products, right? So now you're talking about how do you deal with indexing? How do you deal with more sophisticated strategies? How do you deal with yield? How do you deal with staking? There's, there are pieces of this infrastructure that can become significantly more complex. And so a lot of those benefits grow as the product suite grows. I think all of that is extremely well said. I mean, one thing that I'll add here is that just because crypto ETPs exist, that doesn't mean people can't still buy crypto direct. I don't know why that gets lost. And I've always described crypto ETPs as really being a bridge between crypto and traditional financial services. And by having that bridge, you're gonna get more people interested, you're gonna get more people learning about crypto and the entire ecosystem here. I think those are all positives. If you can allow people to interact with crypto in ways that they're familiar, in ways that they're comfortable about, that'll start pushing them down the, the learning curve. Uh, so no, I, I think what you said was spot on. 
Uh, Ophelia, we, we only have a couple minutes left. I, I wish we had a full hour, but I, I would like to briefly get your views on the crypto market overall. You mentioned crypto is still early, and I don't think anybody would, would question that. But you, you look this year, it's been pretty tough, right? I mean, Bitcoin is down over 50%. Ether's down over 50%. Pick your crypto. Most are down substantially. What, what are you seeing in terms of investor interest in your products? And, and just what's your high-level take on overall market sentiment? right now because i feel like i've seen a lot of victory lapping from crypto naysayers right they're you know jumping around saying see i told you it was all a scam and those sorts of things what what, what are you seeing here so two things one we're still seeing inflows of our products pretty consistently across the range and we haven't seen any major outflows and that's because we work with our clients quite frankly most of our clients are very thesis driven and long-term holders. And we typically build products for long-term holders, so much so that our first product is literally called HODL. Um, more broadly, talking about the market, people forget that this is absolutely not crypto's first bear market. It's not even my company's first bear market. We launched literally at the peak of the last bull and went through a halving of our AUM after like slaving away to get a $5 million seed um, for our first product. And... This is actually the best time in crypto, and it, it causes a bunch of different things to happen. One is the tourists leave. So in terms of actually building interesting things and real innovation in the sector, this is when that happens. This is when all of the major breakthroughs happen. This is how NFTs were made. This is how DeFi was made. This is how Bitcoin was made. It comes out of these types of market conditions that force people to actually focus and build things that are, are, are of high value. And so from my perspective, this is an actually extraordinary time in the sector. If you actually look at what's happening at a fundamental level. So I think the naysayers doing their victory lap, that's great. But realistically, what's, being, what's happening today in most high quality crypto companies is the seeds of the next major leaps forward for crypto are happening and will likely point back to this time period in 12 or 18 months as being the birth of something new and extraordinary in the sector that launches this forward in a meaningful way and hopefully helps us bring the next billion people into crypto. Well, Ophelia, with that, we're going to have to leave it there. Again, really enjoyed connecting. We'll certainly have to do this again. I, I love what you're building at 21 shares. Hope a, a U.S. spot Bitcoin ETF is somewhere in the future as well. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much. This was really fun. That was Ophelia Snyder, co-founder and president of 21Shares. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Capital Group. If you would like to learn more about Capital Group's ETFs, you can visit capitalgroup.com slash ETFs. Next week, I'll be joined by Innovative Portfolios' Peter Belopetrovich. He's going to spotlight their actively managed income-focused ETFs, and then, as I mentioned earlier, Nightshare CEO Bruce Levine is going to go in-depth on the night effect and those two Nightshares ETFs. Really looking forward to that. Until then, have a great week, everyone. <laughs>